Hey, welcome to The Scrub, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. Peter Kadzis is out doing some intense editing, but he'll be back next week. In a bit, you're going to hear our producer, Zoe Matthews, size up the upcoming Somerville mayor's race with Somerville Journal reporter Julia Taliesin. But first, I am joined by my GBH colleague, Soraya Wintersmith, for an update on the mysterious limbo state currently surrounding the Boston Police Department. Soraya, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. So Dennis White, Boston's new police commissioner, was suspended almost as soon as he got the job after the Boston Globe reported that he'd been accused in the past of domestic violence by his ex. The city has been investigating this for more than a month now. Are we close to a resolution? Adam, the short answer is no, based on the information that I'm getting from the mayor's office. We might be three weeks away from the end of the investigation, and that doesn't say anything about what happens with Commissioner White's actual position once that investigation is complete. What are the various mayoral candidates saying about this situation? I know that you, as we talk right now, are wrapping up a piece, taking stock of how the field is responding. So what are they saying? It's varying degrees of criticism, which is interesting to me. Um, You and I are not Bostonians, but this is my first time watching a mayor's race. And it seems like this would be an easy dunk (laughs) for someone to um, not point the finger, but hold the administration accountable and say, you really messed up here. Uh, The most pointed criticism, I think, is coming from Councilor Andrea Campbell, who has described the way that the administration went about vetting white, or not vetting white, as a failure. Um, Aside from that, Michelle Wu has said she means to have a process with more community input. And then the other candidates, because it's still a small, relatively small field. The other candidates, some have not given any criticism at all, like in the case of Councillor Anissa Asavi-George. She just said that she supported Walsh's move to investigate uh, the 20-year-old claims against White, but said nothing of how the vetting process went down. Uh, We did not hear, as of right now, from John Barrows, who is Walsh's former economic development chief. John Santiago, I think, is doing the most careful stepping around this issue. He has said, obviously, the vetting was not there. At the same time, he is supportive of Walsh's move to investigate White. And on top of that, He's also not taking the sort of forceful tone about police reforms that some of the other candidates have. When you said that Michelle Wu is saying there should be more community input, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So I've talked to a couple of folks who have consulted for cities that are looking to install new police leaders. And community input can come in lots of different forms. Michelle Wu didn't say whether she'd like to do a community survey, which would you know, help inform what the priorities for a new police leader might be. She didn't say whether or not she would have um, 
an informal commission kind of sworn to secrecy to sit on the review panel. She didn't specify how community input would happen. She just said that it's important that there is trust built in the process. And she did say that she thinks that Boston should have a national search rather than an insular one. As you run through that stance of Michelle Wu's, it's reminding me that there are a couple layers of irony in this situation, at least so it seems to me. Tell me, tell me if you think otherwise. You've got a member of the police department, Dennis White, who was the mayor's representative, one of the mayor's representatives on this commission that was coming up with ways to reform the Boston police, a commission aimed at maximizing community input when it comes to how the police department is run. White was on that commission, but then became commissioner of the Boston Police Department without a great deal of community input, as I understand it. I know he's well regarded by the people who are on that commission with him, but a lot of people were taken aback by that selection. And you have this push in the city of Boston to make the police department more transparent, which White was a part of. And yet now we've got this investigation around these allegations involving White, which is being handled, it seems, in a largely non-transparent way. So there's all these tensions in what we're talking about. There is a lot there, Adam, yeah. You have reported previously that some people who are supporters of police reform, who were part of that police reform task force with Dennis White, really believe that he is getting treated unfairly in this situation. Can you recap their argument? I think that Mamlio is probably the strongest example of an organization that has said this specific incident represents one where there's an officer of color who's being handled differently than white officers have been in the past. They came out with a statement about a week after white suspension suggesting that there have been cases where officers are accused of perhaps domestic violence, perhaps sexual assault, DUIs, what have you, and that BPD leadership will pick and choose how deeply to investigate the incident, whether or not the incident even warrants any sort of investigation, and then beyond that, how long the investigation goes, and then beyond that, what kind of punishment is meted out once it's all over. Mamlio, as many of our listeners will know, is the Mass Association of Minority Law Enforcement Officers. Let me ask you a question about that critique. White's case seems like a hard one to draw comparisons to because you had this allegation that was made well, he was not in a high-ranking position of leadership. We don't know exactly what was done inside the BPD, you know, years ago when this was first floated in terms of looking into it or not looking into it. And then you have it resurfacing after he's named commissioner, and now he's off the job for the time being, uh, suspended. It's being investigated 
but it's being investigated on the heels of him becoming the top cop in the BPD. So there's kind of two things. There's two different manifestations of the Dennis White case that could be compared to the way it usually works for officers inside the BPD who are accused of doing something bad. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But based on your reporting, it doesn't sound, at least to me, like the mayoral candidates are leveling the same aggressive criticism that Mamlio has, correct? That's right. As of this moment, no one has come out and said in the same way that Mamlio has that Dennis White categorically treated unfairly. This should all be done over and he should be reinstalled. None of the mayoral candidates have said that. But they are doing, at least some of them, a bit of a dance whereby they acknowledge that there is at least a perception of a prevailing problem without specifically saying this is indicative of that problem. So if I'm Andrea Campbell and I release a large, long-winded statement uh, that, again, calls the vetting process a failure and tangentially alludes to officers of color and disproportionate meeting out of punishment, uh, black and brown people and disproportionate stops and arrests. Um, you can mention these things. You can invoke these things. You can signal to people that you are aware of these things without coming down and saying this is completely an instance of all of those problems. It's interesting as you talk about the subtle nature of for example, Andrea Campbell's response. I'm imagining being someone who's running for mayor, trying to figure out how to talk about what's at play here. And it just seems like it's loaded with minefields because if you focus on the perception that black officers historically are treated unfairly, then you risk sounding to some voters like you're minimizing concerns about domestic violence. And if you focus on the allegations of domestic violence, which we should remind listeners, um, you've reported that Dennis White's daughter takes issue with. She had a conversation with you in which she said, my dad didn't do what he was accused of doing by my mother. If you focus on the allegations against him from his ex, you can seem like you're minimizing concerns about disparate treatment of non-white individuals inside and outside the BPD. So there's almost no good way to be forceful uh, without being risky, too. I think it's really, really, really hard if you are a black politician or a politician trying to be super cognizant of black people who feel like black officers are mistreated all the time. I think police is always a tricky subject that you have to dance around as a politician anyway. <laughs> so when Kim Janey finally becomes acting mayor, which it seems like she's probably going to do next week, although I thought it was going to happen this week and, and I was wrong, who's going to be in charge of the Boston Police Department? The acting commissioner that Walsh has since installed, Gregory Long, will be acting commissioner until a permanent mayor is sworn in and goes about selecting the commissioner however they choose. William Gross was seen as not overly receptive to civilian reform efforts 
Dennis White was seen by people who want more civilian oversight as an ally, even though he was also someone thought of as being very personally close to Gross. How does Gregory Long fit into this picture? Ah, Adam, you've hit on a crucial area yet to be explored. <laughs> we don't know too much. I don't know too much about Greg Long and how he feels towards reform. We do know that he's had a long career um, within the Boston police force, that he started off as a patrol officer in the Mattapan Dorchester area, that he moved up through the Youth Strike Force unit, eventually coming to head that before going through homicide and eventually coming to head that unit before eventually going to uh, become chief of detectives after doing lots of detective work. So he's definitely gone through various departments of the BPD. It would make sense for him to hold that sort of thin blue line mentality when it comes to reform, but we don't know because we've never asked him. And Dennis White, we should note, uh, you know, spent a long time inside the BPD working his way up and yet became a reform advocate. Right. All right, Soraya Wintersmith, thank you for taking the time to talk this through. It was fascinating. Thanks for the chance to talk. Now on to Somerville. As all of you already know, Joe Curtatoni, who's been mayor for almost 18 years, said recently he is not going to seek re-election. That's led to widespread speculation about what he might do next, including possibly running for governor as a Democrat. Here he is on GBH's Boston Public Radio. I don't have a job. I haven't asked someone and no one's called and I'm not going anywhere until my uh, duties are finished. I have a clear focus on what I have to do here. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this right and I'll make sure the next administration as well and next mayor, whoever she or he may be, has everything they need to succeed because I'm going to be living in this community. And all those other questions I can take enough time, give it enough space to figure that out. And I'm sure I'll figure it out at some point. I'm going to have to decide what I want to be when I grow up eventually. So, Meanwhile, a mayoral race that could be just as interesting as the one in Boston is starting to take shape. Two candidates are already in. Billy Toro, a longtime Curtatoni critic who runs his own newspaper in town, the Somerville News, and Katiana Ballantyne, a Somerville city councilor, have both said they're running, and more candidates will almost certainly get in the mix in the very near future. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, sat down with Somerville Journal reporter Julia Taliesin to talk about Curtatoni's future and what the big issues in the race to replace him are going to be. So, Julia, first off, how did you respond when you first found out that he was not going to run for another term? And what are you hearing about why he's not running? So he he announced the news during the kind of traditional midterm address that the mayor always gives. So he he definitely kept it under wraps until that kind of event. Um, and I only had, I, I feel like, a bit of a heads up given that the kind of city communications office was kind of like, you really want to be here for this. <laughs> you really want to make sure you're there. So beyond that... Um, it, there's kind of been rumblings. I mean, he's been he's been the mayor. Um, by the time he leaves, it will be 18 years. It's a really long time. Um, so he's he's definitely accomplished a lot in his time. As for what I'm hearing, um, yes, of course you're right. It is definitely a rumor that he is exploring a run for governor. Many people kind of take his outspoken stance against Baker or about Baker and how he's especially responded to the COVID crisis as kind of an initial you know beginning of a campaign. Um, I will say that, you know, there were a number of reporters um, in a press conference that happened right after the midterm address and 
every, almost every single one, you know, asked him that question directly, you know, are you exploring run for governor? What do you want to see in the next governor? You know what I mean? A lot of questions around that. And I think he said the phrase science fiction at least four times. Um, so at this point, he, he is pretty adamantly saying that right now it is just a rumor. Um, according to him, you know, the reason that he stepped down is just a personal choice for personal reasons. He did also mention that he's very tired from COVID. He said that a couple of times as well. Um, and honestly, can you blame him? He's also kind of been hailed throughout this as being kind of, a, um, especially in the beginning, kind of a pioneer of pretty strict regulation um, and also continuing to hold Somerville back in prior reopening phases while the state moves forward. And also, of course, criticizing Baker about that. But I will also say that, you know, this is an, an odd year. This is when local elections take place. This isn't really the time that someone would necessarily declare a run for governor anyways. Um, so because just because he is saying no at this point, I don't think necessarily rules it out entirely. That's probably news that we might get in the fall, maybe in the winter. You know what I mean? So I don't know that any of us can really say if it's completely off the table. But at this point, according to Kurt Tony, he is not going to be running for governor. OK, what are you hearing in the city about who may run to replace him? So at this point, um, actually, there is only one candidate who has already declared their intent to run. Um, I believe papers have to be filed by like the end of May around then. So we're not kind of through it yet. A number of city councilors have already posted on social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, saying, you know, like, thank you for your questions. I will be kind of considering and like declaring my intentions in the next week or so. So no one kind of on the progressive side of things has yet declared candidacy. The candidate who has already been campaigning is William Toro or Billy Toro, as he's kind of known in Somerville. He is definitely a more conservative candidate. Um, he's been an outspoken Trump supporter, for example, which many you know who know Somerville will know that Somerville is kind of hailed as a very progressive city and um, Tony as a rather progressive mayor. So Billy Toro um, is an interesting candidate. He is kind of very old Somerville, if you will. Um, he's you know lived here his whole life. He's been around and very, very active um, in the city. There's a lot of kind of mystery <laughs> around around him in that, um, you know, he's this old Somerville guy, knows the city, he knows the people, is very connected. He owns a lot of property. He also runs this kind of news blog called the Somerville News Weekly, which is rather controversial in and of itself. Um, I've also, you know, had an interesting relationship with him in that he, you know, he really is knows a lot of people and has insider information on a lot of people. But he's also very open about the fact that he has a vendetta against Mayor Curtitoni, and it's sometimes difficult to kind of parse out what information is correct and what information may be kind of blown out of proportion. In terms of him as a candidate, you know, he's definitely more conservative. Um, he does, I think, have support from more of the old Somerville, some of the older people in the city. As to whether he would win, I think, um, you know, we don't know and we don't know who's running against him at this point. You know what I mean? So I would say, you know, I have a guess as to like one or two of the city council members currently who might run against him. But I also know that a lot of the councillors are um, kind of movement candidates and are there to make a difference. They were campaigned for by this group called Our Revolution Somerville, which has been really active on the progressive side of things and getting young leftist candidates like into the city council, into leadership positions. So I, I don't know exactly yet what will happen, but I do think that this will happen rather quickly, that in the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing people start declaring their intentions. You mentioned uh, really briefly just the demographic differences in the city. And it's like you said, the old Somerville, that older generation 
There's also the young professionals, progressives, and gentrifiers that are at odds with that generation. I'm thinking of the time when uh, Kurt Tony put a Black Lives Matter banner on City Hall, and that put him at odds with the police union. And he's been a vocal advocate for rent control and other progressive housing policies. Can you tell me a little bit about what you see on the streets of these opposing forces in the city? I think you you got <clears throat> right to the heart of it. Um, Somerville is a really interesting place in that regard. You know, when you look at the kind of the census, right, or the demographics on paper, it's a very young city and it's a pretty diverse city as well. You know, we have some pretty diverse neighborhoods, a lot of public housing in the city as well. And it's also, I mean, constantly hailed as one of the, the densest city in like New England, right? So it's, there's a lot of people packed into a very small space. And I think that does kind of create a little bit of friction. I think housing is a really good issue to kind of examine that within um, because, for example, in my reporting on that, yes, the city has an office of housing stability. They've been active in tenant protections. Know your rights. You mean all of those things. Yes, the mayor has been an outspoken supporter of rent control. The city has approved home rule petitions that have gone to the state to try to kind of change that, which has have not been approved because there's a lot of you know controversy around rent control, obviously. But on the other side, you know, I am also frequently contacted by landowners and property owners. There's a coalition, I believe it's the Somerville Property Owners Coalition, that is vehemently against rent control and believes the mayor is, you know, not doing the right thing with this and that there are other ways and more along the kind of Baker administration line of like, we need to build more housing. You mean not just make housing affordable, which is much more kind of where Somerville's government is at. For example, they have a program called the 100 Homes Program where they have purchased 100 housing units and made them permanently affordable. So there's all this work going on around that. So yeah, housing is definitely an issue um, and kind of issue of that. And I think we're, we're really going to see that, especially with Billy Toro as a candidate. We're going to see that come out in this next mayoral election. I think what's interesting, too, is that he, Kurt Tony's also sort of faced pressure from the left on housing, too, and that he's also, you know, I remember the last, what was it, the last mayor's race, he went up against a candidate who was backed by our revolution, and he faced some questions about how close he was with the big money developers in the city of Somerville. Policing is also another issue where that shows up, because... A lot of people right around the state hail Curtitoni as like, look at him, like he's been this police reform candidate and he came in and in the beginning that was one of his things he was going to do. He was going to reform the police department, which used to be, I think, a lot worse than it is now. And now, even though the city is taking a number of steps, you know, the city council has two positions that are looking into establishing civilian oversight. This is happening. The work is underway. The city is working on hiring a director of racial and social justice to run an entirely new department. They've already requested funding for two more positions for that department. So that's all kind of happening at the city level. And yet there's still groups like Defund SPD, which had this petition signed by, I think, several thousand people in the city to say, no, 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 you're not doing enough. You know, you need to take far more funding away from the police department and all and put it into different social services and community services and are saying that Curtis Tony is not doing enough. So I think that's a really good point, And policing is another issue where that's relevant for sure. Julia Taliesin, local reporter for the Somerville Journal. What else can you tell me about what I should know about the Curtitoni race or just Somerville in 2021? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I'm not sure what else I really could tell you yet. I think, you know, he's really popular with some people. He's really unpopular with others, but I suppose that's leadership. And um, I think that for anyone, it's been kind of a tough last term 
I mean, let's think about the last year, right? And the different issues that have come up. For example, I think education is a really good point. Somerville is just, I think, tomorrow getting students officially back in schools, whereas other districts have had them in schools, some high-need students in schools since October. You know what I mean? So his point about him being tired from COVID is kind of an apt one because it's pretty evident that this has been a really hard year. And I think it's it's going to be interesting seeing what points come up in the next race because Cardatoni may be blamed for some of the, the challenges that the city is facing um, when really those challenges, you know, every community is facing and Cardatoni made a choice. You know what I mean? In terms of like keeping Somerville back and reopening, being really, really cautious about reopening schools. And none of us really know yet, right? throughout all of this like there's no playbook for how to navigate a pandemic as like a, a city um so that he's just kind of been making one up like every other state and city and town has so it's going to be interesting to see kind of how how that comes comes into this next race and who's blamed and etc I, I will say you know one other thing that Curtis Tony said during his address and during questions was that while he is tired and he did not you know, confirm a run for governor. He said a number of times that he is fired up for public service um, and is really, you know, not done, I think, serving his constituency city and just his community. So I don't think we know yet what that's going to look like. Will it be governor? Will it be another position? Um, but I don't think we've seen the last of him in, in a public uh, kind of elected position. Thank you so much for taking some time again. I really appreciate it. Of course. And that's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Soraya Wintersmith and Julia Taliesin for joining us and to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us if you haven't, and talk back to us. Email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Zoe Matthews is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. Peter Kadzis is at Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.